1: Hackers break into just about every big system these days, from global ATMs to the Pentagon and national retailers. Today on Climate One, we'll talk about hacking into the biggest operating system of all, the Earth's climate system that runs our weather and supports the economy. For decades, a small group of researchers in the United States and other countries have been tinkering with the idea of hacking the sky. By spewing dust into the air, they say humans could simulate volcanic eruptions which are known to temporarily curl the Earth. As temperatures around the world continue to rise, the idea of such geoengineering has moved from science fiction to serious consideration. Over the next hour, we will talk about the scientific, moral, economic, and technological dimensions of humans getting so hot they decide to break the glass and spray a huge fire extinguisher in the sky. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco... We're pleased to have with us three guests deeply involved in the geoengineering debate. Ken Caldeira is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University and a foremost expert on geoengineering. Oliver Morton is brief- briefings editor at The Economist and author of the new book The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. Kim Stanley Robinson is an award-winning author of science fiction. His most recent book is Green Earth a compilation of his science in the capital trilogy it depicts a fictional US president phil chase living in washington dc at a time when the gulf stream is disrupted and some winters hit like an ice age it sounds familiar i get a lot of emails about that <laughs> please welcome him to climate one Oliver Morton, let's begin with a story. 1965, uh, U.S. President Lyndon Johnson receives what is one of the, f- the, the first time a, a U.S. president receives a report on climate change. And rather than talking about reducing the source, uh, Roger Revelle had a novel idea for addressing it. Tell us that story.
3: Well, yeah, this is the reason that this story matters so much is because it shows you how attitudes to the climate and the right place for humans to be in the world can change quite strongly in quite short periods of time. So. Ravel has done the work in the 1950s that has shown that carbon dioxide is, contrary to some previous expectations, building up in the atmosphere. And he knows that this is going to lead to a level of greenhouse warming. And he puts this into the uh, report of the president in 1965. It's, a sort of, it's an appendix to this, to this report. And he says, well, what shall we do about it? And in 1965, talking to Lyndon Baines Johnson, you do not say, well, we're going to radically change the whole nature of capitalism. You don't say we're going to do anything about people making oil in Texas. Uh, (laughs) You say things like, we could put lots of little reflective bubbles on the surface of the ocean and reflect back some of the sunlight. And at that time, the idea of uh, a technological fix had not taken on the somewhat... um, Uh, condescended to uh, sense that it has today. Um, The idea of a technological fix did not seem in and of itself absurd. And it's quite extraordinary that just in 50 years, um, the fact that that was the only thing that report said now seems extraordinary to us. But maybe in 50 years time from now, people will say the degree to which people are unwilling at the present era to talk about uh, this form of geoengineering, not little balls on the ocean, but any form of geoengineering, maybe that would also look strange.
1: There's another story. A few years later, uh, Edward Teller and some other scientists were exploring the impacts. Obviously, this is the height of the Cold War, nuclear winter. And how is that connected to the um, evolution of what is geoengineering?
3: Well, it's connected in an, in an interestingly, um, uh, interestingly unexpected way. Um, when people talk about nuclear power throughout the 20, early part of the 20th century, they link it in their minds with power over climate. Um, because it seems like a sort of like ultimate godlike power. And so the great, um, the great, uh British radiochemist Soddy, when he writes the first popular treatment of radioactivity in the, in the, early, in the early 20th century, talks about how it, can make, how it can destroy ice caps and make deserts bloom. That's what nuclear energy does. Same thing happens straight after the Second World War. Um, Julian Huxley, Aldous Huxley's brother, talks about maybe melting the Arctic ice and making a new world for us all up, up in the Arctic, and this is the power of the atom. But when people like Teller actually talk about using atomic weapons, atomic power to actually fight wars... Oddly, this story goes in reverse, and for many, many years, people do not talk about the climate impacts of nuclear war. And now it seems, again, in retrospect, blazingly obvious that if you set off huge fires over much of the surface of the Earth, you might do something to the climate. But there's a sort of, like, studied, uh, and I don't think deliberate, but definitely psychologically telling, refusal to engage with that. And so the idea of nuclear winter comes about much later than most people Think. I mean, I've had to, I've chosen to uh, correct some fairly eminent uh, historians on this. That they all talk oh, nuclear winter. That idea of the sixties and seventies. No, it starts in the nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. It was an idea. It was a way of thinking about the world, a way of thinking about human power within the world that was very late to come to attention because there was a vested interest in thinking that, in some ways, nuclear world could, nuclear power could end the world without changing it
1: or that a nuclear power, yeah, war could be fought and winnable, that sort of thing. Uh, Ken Caldera, let's have you explain what is geoengineering. What's a, give us a brief explanation of this is a
0: very abstract concept. How do you describe it? There are two main categories of geoengineering. If we think about the global warming that humans are producing, it's primarily due to the fossil fuel CO2 that we're adding to the atmosphere. And this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere makes it more difficult for heat to escape to space. And so one approach, which is relatively non-controversial, is to just remove some of the carbon dioxide that we're adding to the atmosphere. But if we think about what's heating the Earth up to begin with, it's the sunlight hitting the Earth and we're absorbing this solar radiation. And... So another way to cool off the Earth would be to reflect some of that incoming sunlight back to space. And this is precisely what volcanoes do. And the Earth has cooled after each of the large volcanoes that have occurred over the last 50 years or so. And so the other leading idea is basically to emulate what big volcanoes do, put material in the stratosphere to reflect sunlight. And there's a few other ideas as well, but they're all based on the same idea of reflecting sunlight back to space.
1: Kim Stanley-Robinson, is that uh, comprehensive enough, the idea of either sucking carbon out of the sky or bouncing heat back toward the sun? Well, I think that the
4: the common understanding of this term geoengineering has (laughs) morphed fairly quickly to the notion that it would be a technological silver bullet, where you could do one thing and solve the problem of us burning fossil fuels. So uh, people immediately object to it as a kind of a moral hazard that if we think that we can get away with it that we won't decarbonize fast enough. And then also there's a certain resistance to the technocratic in general of uh, taking over of the... The, not just uh, uh, world history, but even planetary ecosystems themselves by some uh, poorly defined technological elite with a method in mind. And so many things have gone wrong in, in the human interventions in this planet before that people distrust it on several levels. So it's getting attacked almost immediately for things that are not quite right or true. And yet they, there's reasons why these attacks have come about. For instance, people will say, well, you put something up in the atmosphere and then you, we're going to accidentally cause an ice age. And there's not an understanding that, like volcanic explosions, that dust goes into the atmosphere. For five years it's cooler, then it falls down to the ground. So in a way, this is kind of an experiment that we could run that has a natural terminus to it. So it's a, a little bit safer than uh, other things that might be suggested. So yeah, it's it's gotten complicated. I always try to say, well, geoengineering. If we change, if we if we plant a lot of forests, um, if we give all the women on the planet their full legal rights, we've changed the climate of the earth in a radical way. So that's geoengineering too. And this kind of blows the discussion apart. And I'm not sure that's where we want to go tonight. <laughs> but um, I think it's important to point out that we're we're talking about. Um, humanity's relationship to the biosphere and the planet as a a complex system that we can't hack. That's not the right word, but we might be able to finesse it in ways that will uh, keep us from causing a mass extinction event. So we need to talk about it, but it can quickly get scary in several different ways.
3: Yeah, I I, I don't particularly like the the, the hack metaphor, but uh, one thing that you were saying, I, I, I can't emphasize enough, the idea that there is in some minds, and I think in some of the popular conception of geoengineering that it 's necessarily an alternative to reducing fossil fuel emissions is pernicious and wrong. Um, there is no gap, there 's no iron law that says you have to have one or the other. You can quite easily imagine worlds where you have both and, and the There is this idea of moral hazard, this idea that if you have geoengineering, moral hazard being the idea that um, if if you're insured against risk or some other other way immune to risk, you will be riskier. And it's clear that that moral hazard is a real thing in the world. Um, You can look at the banking system and see an awful lot of moral hazard. (coughs) The people will take risks if they think they'll get bailed out. Um, But that doesn't... And that doesn't apply only to geoengineering, and it doesn't apply only to solar geoengineering. The biggest amount of moral hazard that I see in the geoengineering debate at the moment is actually with the carbon dioxide stuff. I was at the uh, Paris Climate Conference, and it was a very inspiring conference to be at. Um, And it came away with the world actually having a system for talking about dealing with this problem and with uh, with a set of ambitions of keeping warming well below 2 degrees, which is, you know, a high level of ambition, but with pledges on action um, that were grossly insufficient to that high level of ambition. And so what you're finding in the discussion about future emissions at the moment is there's an acceptance that in the second half of the 21st century, in the first half of the 22nd century, something somewhere will be pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But there's no real discussion about how that's going to be done. And that's where moral hazard gets really dangerous, because you begin to say, well, always we can trade off emissions cuts now with, um, with more sucking out later. And when you haven't really done the research in a way to find out how you might do that sucking out or what level of sucking out is possible. That's very tricky. So there's been a lot of talk about moral hazard with the sunlight mechanisms. I think the sunlight mechanisms from this point of view, not from all points of view, are kind of safer because it would be a really big thing that you know there would be big political debate about to do that. At the moment, now that we've let emissions... Now we've let um, negative emissions, carbon dioxide reduction, into our thinking but haven't stopped to work out how to actually do it. I think that's the area where there's moral hazard at the moment.
0: Ken Caldeir? Yeah, just to build on some of what Oliver was just saying, in Paris, at this COP21 meeting, the governments of the world, if you look at what emissions they've promised to uh, try to hold themselves to over the next decades, to and then they, they claimed this 2-degree or 1.5-degree targets, in order to meet those targets, the governments basically need to remove large amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere later this century. So essentially, geoengineering, at least in the, in the way of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, is the implicit policy of every major government in this world right well, now. Well,
1: some would say that st- uh, stop burning fossil fuels... Um, would be a big part of that, that a lot of the technology already exists today, renewables are there, that, that somehow geoengineering is a way to, to let the fossil fuel companies keep
0: doing business as usual and us to keep living like we do. Yeah, I think there's a fundamental... Again, the, this area is presented often as a dichotomy. Either we re- reduce emissions or we do these geoengineering it, Okay, we've techniques. heard it's going to be both. Right? Right. And, 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 but, and I think that maps on to this feeling like we can either change ourselves and our behavior and our social and political environment, or we can go for some techno fix. And uh, and I think there's just a feeling that uh, we need to change our political and social environment and that we can't just rely on technology. And this is really where Edward Teller comes in because he never trusted social systems to solve problems and thought, oh, we need to invent technology to solve our problems, which... Is one of the reasons why we're here. This so, year. Ken Caldera, where is
1: the status of testing today? Is there any testing going on today, uh, either openly or secretly, at the, the U.S. at the Pentagon or anywhere else? Where, where
0: for carbon dioxide removal, there is testing. There's a pilot plant going on up in Canada right now, and also, of course, planting forests and so on is a form of carbon dioxide removal. For the sunlight reflecting techniques, basically all the research is indoors at this point, mostly in computers. And do you think it should go outdoors?
1: Do you think that there should be real-life outdoor testing of this technology?
0: I think with appropriate safeguards and oversight uh, by appropriate governmental bodies, there should be outdoor experimentation. But I don't think just rogue individuals should go out and uh, do it themselves. That's, that's, Oliver there's, a, there's,
3: a, there's a really interesting precedent here, which Ken was actually involved in. And the, one of the more radical ideas about removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere was the idea that you could do it by stimulating plankton blooms in the southern oceans. Um, And this was an idea that was brought about partly because it's an idea about how ice ages might start and probably has a certain amount, not a complete, but a certain amount of validity in that area. Um, And people tried doing it. And so they went out into the Southern Oceans and well-instrumented scientific experiments dumped a lot of um, iron in, saw what happened, and it is true that there was increased photosynthesis, not to the extent that they expected, and there various complications. But what's really heartening about this story is that people took the issue seriously. There is um, an international agreement about what you can and can't dump in the ocean. The people responsible for that took the advice of Ken and other people and started thinking about how to change their regulations to uh, understand and take account of these scientific needs. And the scientific community decided that they didn't think that this really looked like a particularly effective way of sucking down carbon dioxide, though it's not a settled question. There are some people who still like it, some people who dislike it very much. But what I find interesting about this is that it was a, a kind of scary, weird idea that was tested and that was discussed and that it was found that there were existing international rules for providing some level of governance. And so I think that's something, I hope you feel proud of it. Do you think that's something of a success story?
0: I, I think there was some overreaction there, but I, overall it was largely a success.
1: Ken there <laughs> you've been part of a research effort funded by Bill Gates. So tell us, uh, he has a portfolio of investments, nuclear power, et cetera, and how does this fit into his strategy, and, and what has Bill Gates been funding on geoengineering?
0: Well, f- first let's just say that he, along with his friends, have raised $5 billion for investment in clean energy technologies, and, and so his investments in clean energy technologies are a thousand times larger than his investments in climate uh, research of this sort. And so he funds uh, my group largely and also David Keith's group and a few other efforts to David do... David Keith is a researcher now at Harvard. At, ...to do innovative climate and energy research, some of which is is geoengineering-related, but our work is all with computer models and... Uh, trying to understand the consequences of different things people might do. Um, a few years ago, some of this money did go to fund uh, proof of concept for uh, a sprayer that could potentially uh, whiten marine clouds, but that was all done indoors as a proof of concept. But again, uh, you know, his, his main effort is on trying to affect emissions reduction, and, and he sees that, that there's a lack of research in this area and was hoping the governments would pick up the slack, but they haven't so far.
1: Oliver Morton, you write about Greenfinger. There's there's a a scientist at at the University of California, San Diego, uh, that writes about billionaires buying spaceships, et cetera, uh, and Bill Gates in, in particular. David Victor.
3: Ah, David Victor. Yes. Um, no. David's uh, a very, uh, a, a, a very insightful analyst of the political economy of energy, and uh, David, uh, David's worked a bit on, uh, on on climate geoengineering, and he dubbed the idea, or he created the, he didn't create the idea, but he dubbed this idea Goldfinger. And the idea is that. The thing about putting particles into the upper atmosphere like a volcano does is that you don't have to be all flashy and boomy and multi-megatonny like a volcano to do that. You can do that with aircraft or with balloons maybe or something like that. And there's debate about how difficult it is, but it's not very difficult. And in a in an era when a man like Elon Musk can you know build a space fleet, um, the idea of building the capac- capacity to alter the planet in a way in, in such a way just out of one person's capital um, is oddly plausible. Uh, I mean, the idea that it's possible. The idea that um, the political reality of the world would allow someone to do this uh, without, you know, without shutting them down, that is a little bit less plausible to my mind. And Bill Gates gets pulled into this because it's known that Bill Gates funds some geoengineering research at Ken and David's Labs and a few other places. And so when you've got a billionaire um, and you've got this idea that this is, in an odd way, cheap enough that a billionaire can do it... Um, I remember hearing someone from Google once talking about a space mission, and he said, is this really expe- really expensive? Well, this is this something that a guy like me could do? And,
0: <laughs> and <so laughs> to, to, to give an idea of the scale of effort, it's estimated that the amount of uh, flights that would it would take to maintain an aerosol layer, a small particle layer in the stratosphere, enough to offset all of the warming expected this century, would be... About one one thousandth the size of the commercial aviation industry, so it'd be about the number of flights each year that occur by commercial aviation every six or eight hours. So it's it's really a tiny, economically tiny cost.
3: And I just thought would be even smaller than that because an, um, enough geoengineering to counter counteract everything is a very high amount of geoengineering, especially if you're talking about geoengineering in some way being. Um, Floated in on top of emissions reductions. That's not you're not you don't want to, re, to you don't want to reproduce the effect of a large volcano. It would prof, I mean if you're talking about realistic scenarios down that line, you're talking about something actually yet more tenuous than that, yet so, easier.
1: So it's doable. Uh, so something that sounds like a science fiction novel, Kim Stanley Robinson, we're sitting here talking about it like oh, a billionaire could do it with a few planes, not that big a deal. I'd like to get your thoughts on how the, this uh, something like science fiction is becoming closer and closer to just simple possibility. Well, this is an, um,
4: what we're telling is a science fiction story, a science fiction scenario, and we're running several scenarios at once, and they they tend to get tangled. But the 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 single uh, person changing the world is a very old science fiction story. Basically, the rocket ship that you build in your backyard and go to the moon. So this is a, a, a really common kind of a Horatio Alger story. But I think it is it will instantly get tangled with governance and will be something that the civilization at large can approve or disapprove, can shoot down or whatever. Um, there are problems with the geoengineering of just blocking sunlight in that if you keep on spewing out CO2, a, a third to a half of it ends up in the ocean. The ocean gets more acidic. If the ocean's more acidic, it may lose the bottom of the food chain, um, and then the rest of the food chain collapses also, and that's a third of humanity's food. So we actually do need to decarbonize as well as these other things. And the solar geoengineering is a kind of an emergency science fiction story. What if um, temperatures really begin to spike? What if methane begins to get released to the atmosphere off of the ocean floor or the permafrost begins to melt such that the frozen carbon in the permafrost and methane begins to release fast? and suddenly it, every year it 's like two degrees hotter than the year before, and we are clearly reaching a a, a moment of crossing one of those tipping points into a completely different planet uh, a jungle planet at that point. then you say, "We need to put the uh, the dust in the air
3: but that's Other the one more, that that, that's that sort of scenario is the one that that really concerns me because that 's actually a very common way of framing this story about geoengineering that you hear the idea that it's a sort of like in case of emergency break glass sort of thing Mm -hmm. and a time when the earth is already going through um, severe climate changes and geopolitical panic is exactly the wrong time to launch a large planet changing sort of sort of sort of um effort Uh, and it's very um prone to you know the Theory of emergencies that you get in Kashmir and other places that you know he who makes the emergency makes the rule. It it, it fundamentally challenges ideas about democratic democratic or quasi or pseudo democratic democratic. Why do I keep saying that um, uh, governance in the climate system? It seems to me that it's much much wiser to talk about introducing small amounts of geoengineering. Um, at a time when the world is not completely freaked sure. out than large amounts at a time when it is.
4: Sure, but this is uh, w- wiser means perhaps less likely to happen. It, it, when when everybody would agree to do something is, I think, when uh, after you have, say, the first food crisis, uh, planetary food crisis, uh, something uh, severe enough to shock people. Before that, it will be uh, intensely argued and there will never be enough agreement for the world community to do it, and then you get the idea of the, Ram- the Rambo um, individual doing it on their own. Uh, if you run the scenarios, there's, there's never a good one. Uh, for geoengineering, unless you start talking about, let's uh, uh, reforest all the places that have been deforested, the Pacific Northwest, uh, the Amazon. You can capture 100 gigatons of carbon by reforesting. Let's um, try out uh, geoengineering uh, once over the Arctic. Uh, Let's let's, uh, stabilize population. Let's capture the carbon that we're burning when we burn uh, fossil fuels. Uh, People uh, are saying, oh, my God, that would make energy twice as expensive as it is now, as if that's a stopper. Energy is insanely cheap. It's too cheap. So you make it twice as expensive, and your bill for the month goes from $10 to $20, and it's really only the big industries that are being hurt by this. It really only hurts quarterly profit and shareholder value. It That's doesn't hurt stand,
3: daily but, you know, there are there, one and a half billion people who don't have access to electricity at all. Energy is not cheap to them. But solar, you know, power,
4: that, uh, solar power has already become cheaper. If you didn't subsidize the carbon industry uh, massively by taxpayer money, uh, uh, you, would, uh, you already have the crossover power where clean energy could be quickly put in by uh, government-supported projects... And it would be full employment, it would be a thing to do, and you could have clean energy so much faster than we thought even 10 years ago.
0: Let's let Ken Caldera get in here. Okay, so first let's just, I'll posit that everybody on the stage would like to see a clean energy economy as rapidly as possible, and we'll bring it back to geoengineering. The, Mm -hmm. the, um, The same climate models that project all these terrible outcomes for global warming universally predict that those climate outcomes will be much less worse with solar geoengineering applied at some reasonable level. And if if you thought that we were eventually someday going to need it, the scenario that Oliver lays out where it's slowly ramped in, where we sort of tiptoe into it would be the most environmentally responsible way to do it. Unfortunately the most environmentally responsible way is also the most politically difficult. And the political reality is closer to what Stan was saying, where in an emergency situation, there are model projections that suggest that mammals will not be able to survive outdoors in the tropics because they won't be able to evaporatively cool themselves. There's potential for widespread crop failure in the tropics due to heat stress on crops. And so there's potential for widespread suffering. And if that happens the incentive... If, if there's a leader of a country whose people are starving and they think by injecting some particles in the stratosphere they can feed their people and alleviate suffering, the political pressure to do that is going to be intense. And and so I, while I think Oliver's scenario would be the most environmentally responsible, I think Stan's scenario is the more plausible one. Well, it,
3: let me... Oliver it's by and- framing scenarios like this that we make things plausible and yes. possible. And one of the things I object to about the emergency framing is that it lets Ken and his colleagues off the hook because they're then able to study geoengineering, saying, we don't really have to worry about responsible, plausible politics because those aren't likely to happen. And if there's an emergency, of course, we'll use something. I think that if you actually think that something is good and could reduce harm, then you should be working on trying to reach... in trying to reframe those politics from the get-go, rather than saying, well, we'll do this interesting scientific research, and it's fascinating scientific research. If I didn't think that, I wouldn't have written a book about it. But you can't just, But if you just do that and say, well, the politics will only be the politics of the emergency and we can't have any say over that, then I think you're, to some extent, um, ducking the issue.
1: And do, do you think that doing research also makes it more likely that once there's more money, more funding, more jobs, momentum, that sort of researching something kind of puts it in motion to happening, Oliver Morton?
3: Uh, I think that people worry very much about technical, technological lock-in. At the same time, governments put huge amounts of money into nuclear energy, and they're seeing less and less of that around the world. I don't think... That the argument that just because we research something, it will necessarily happen. There are a lot of things. I mean, for instance, some, a lot of this work... Dates back to the uh, has its like uh, prehistory. In debates about supersonic air transport in the 1960s and 70s, in the 1960s, everyone thought that the obvious next step for passenger air transport was to have supersonic planes. Um, and my government and the French government actually did something about this. Um, so did the russians the americans talked about it and talked about what would be the effect on the stratosphere of putting lots of little particles up there that's why this is familiar and decided and also thought about what would be the noise at ground level and said no that's not something we'll do the idea that research necessarily leads to deployment uh, there are examples where it's the case because most things that end up deployed have been researched but there are a lot of examples where things have been researched and then quietly let 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 go, and I'm I'm. I don't think that there's any evidence that geoengineering is particularly pernicious in that respect.
4: I want to I want to uh, clarify that I like um, the idea of geoengineering because I think we're already doing it, and once we admit to it and begin to try to take control of it for good, um, we are, are in a more honest relationship with the planet, and I would agree that the the best scenario would be to go ahead and try it out. And what's uh, shocking about that is that trying it out is really the full thing, um, and that you put some dust in the atmosphere and see what happens to temperatures. And we know from volcanoes that really not that much experimentation is is necessary. We know that it works at what it does. So, And also, I've seen the the, uh, human terrain, the discussion in this civilization has changed so fast in the last 10 years, that even now, us talking is changing the perception of what geoengineering is and how acceptable it might be. Ten years ago, we couldn't have had this conversation, but the ten hottest years that we have on record it took place in this century. So global warming is happening, and everybody knows it. The denialists are now... Uh, a sp- uh, uh, just a fraction of the power that they had in this society ten years ago. They're gonna uh, uh, slink away from this and pretend they never said it. And we are going to be in a world of global warming. And uh, uh, geoengineering is gonna be something that's talked about more and more, and it may happen in the good uh, scenario rather than the emergency where, where once you have a food crisis everybody's going to be behaving with that level of craziness that won't be good for any uh, any uh, human decision.
1: Although there's some recent evidence uh, recently that the more the scientific evidence has consolidated around Climate change, uh, the more deniers, and actually, I'm not so sure that, that uh, denial has been gone down as the scientific consensus has advanced. You're just joining us, our guest today at Climate Wonder, Kim Stanley Robinson, a scientific author, science fiction author, Oliver Morton, the briefings editor at The Economist, and Ken Caldera from the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. We'll be right back after this break. <laughs>
2: And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and other high rollers have thrown billions of research dollars into areas they're passionate about. Clean energy, space travel, geoengineering. But should we be letting billionaires pick up the tab rather than the government? Climate scientist Jane Long says that relying on private funding can lead to risky science. When it comes to experimenting with our atmosphere, she says, the government should be holding the purse strings the kinds of thought experiments and workshops and things that are being done uh, through private funding, I have no problem. But once we get to uh, any kind of an outdoor research project, you very quickly want to see that become programmatic and become strategic. Because as we move from very, very small scale research with literally no physical risks associated with it, and if you ever move to something that's maybe still very low risk, but large scale, say over 1,000 kilometers or something like that, 1,000 miles, you wouldn't want that kind of research to be done unless it was publicly available, publicly governed, and and that was totally transparent to everyone in, in the public about what was being done and why it was being done. And you wouldn't want to take any risk at all unless it was somehow strategic research. So just because somebody's curious about something, you don't want to see that funded. You want to see it funded because it builds towards something which is determining whether or not these technologies would be effective, whether or not they would be advisable. And if you're not going to do those things in a strategic, public, transparent way, I think that's a disservice. Jane Long is co-chair of the Task Force on Geoengineering at the Bipartisan Policy Center. She spoke with Climate One in 2015. Now, back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club.
1: And it's time for our lightning round. I'm going to ask each of you uh, a yes or no uh, question, starting with Kim Stanley Robinson. For-profit research into geoengineering is a serious public concern. For-profit research, the the profit motive.
4: Is a serious public concern? Um,
1: I, I would say no, it's not a serious public concern. You're not concerned about people making. But, okay, fine. Um, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is yes or no. Lightning no. has struck. Stan. Lightning no, has struck. No, but
4: wait. The question is poorly formed. Sure. The, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, yeah. It's a lightning it You do Sorry, to say that. but the, uh, <laughs> I misunderstood the question. It shouldn't be for profit. That's stupid. It should be uh, for the public good. It should be a public utility uh, and uh, and uh, of the people, by the people, and for the people as a government action.
3: Oliver Morton. The CIA is working on geoengineering. Well, the CIA funds, has funded research on geoengineering, That's, or funded reports on research on geoengineering. That's absolutely true. But um, I, whether it, uh, I have no um, reason to believe that it's actually working on doing it itself.
1: They'll hire other people. Uh, Ken Caldera. if China can hack the Pentagon, they can hack the sky. Yes. <laughs> Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, you are a liberal who loves the U.S. Navy. Yes. <laughs> Except I'm a radical who loves the US Navy, but yes. Uh, you also like GMOs. I do. You betcha. Oliver Morton, Kin Stanley Robinson's science fiction is coming uncomfortably close to becoming reality.
3: Well, uh, I reject the premise of that one. I'm with Stanley on this. I think there is a, a foolish attempt by people to suggest that science fiction and reality are in some ways opposed. I live in a science-fictional reality. There is a robot on Mars blasting things with the laser beams as we speak. The idea, the idea that this is not a science... I mean, there's a guy just there who laughed, who makes spacecraft a few blocks south of market, right? The idea that we are not living in a science-fictional world is, is, just, is just preposterous. Of course... I mean, Stan's, work, Stan, I mean, Stan's, Stan's work is part of the world that we live in, it, but there's no contradiction there.
1: Planet Labs makes low-over uh, yeah, satellites here in San Francisco. Uh, Ken Caldera, carbon dioxide cuts today have basically no effect on the climate for 30 years.
3: Lightning.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, I'll say no to that you do a lot better than an MIT professor who runs the energy department who was here a couple days ago. He had trouble with yes and no. Um, uh, Ken Caldera, you'll be happy when this lightning round is over. Yes, i get right, to that. it's over. All right, there it is. Uh, I'd like to ask each of you, when you think about uh, geoengineering, Kim Stanley Robinson, what gives you fear? Um
4: that people will do the thing they maybe do with the idea that humanity could live on Mars or on some other planet, that they will uh, take less seriously the responsibility to uh, decarbonize fast.
1: Oliver Morton, what gives you fear when you think about the prospect for geoengineering?
3: Well, I think the biggest risks are uh, entailed in relatively small-scale solar geoengineering of the sort we've been talking about. The big risks are geopolitical, Um, rather than geophysical, in my mind. And what worries me about almost all geopolitical risks is nuclear weapons. And I find it extraordinary that I read people say that geoengineering um, provides an unparalleled threat to human existence, and it's something unlike anything else we've ever done. We build machines that can end civilization and set them loose in the oceans. I mean, not uncontrolled, obviously, but uh, the idea that geoengineering is a problem that's somehow vaster than the ability we have to start and end nuclear wars is, is, doesn't make sense to me. So nuclear war is what worries me about geoengineering. Ken Caldera.
0: I think my fear is that the same lack of thoughtful societal deliberation that we're applying to GMOs and health and policy in many areas will also extend to the discussion of geoengineering. It seems that we've devolved into a period where tribalism trumps uh, careful analysis of empirical evidence. And, and I think unless we can make political decisions based on sound information, our society's in big trouble.
1: Oliver Morton, you write that "Planet Speak" weakens the ties between between nature and humans, and makes the the, uh, the planet as this abstract geophysical okay. entity. And that talking about the planet distances the problem. That's a problem. Talking. I,
3: about- I uh, yes, I do say that. So not surprising, I agree with it. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on Wednesdays and Thursdays, on other days. Um, Yes, the idea of the planet, the very powerful icon for the environmental movement of the planet floating in space. It's extremely powerful, but it's also strangely alienating because it takes us out of the environment that's nurturing us and that we are changing. Um, and that has a, there's a lot of modernist thought that's, that's similar to this, and it leads to this strange paradox to me that um, as we see, we feel ourselves um, Divorcing from nature to some extent, living a more urban lifestyle, living with more high tech food, these sorts of things, living with high energy. We are, in a strange, hidden way, becoming much more intimate with nature because in a, there is a sense in the pre industrial age where you can make a sort of like reasonable distinction between the human and the natural. Um, but when you think that, for instance, due to nitrogen, artificial nitrogen in fertilizers, of the nitrogen atoms in your body come from a factory. That's the sort of thing that makes you realize there is a big, intimate interconnection between what it is to be human and what it is to be part of the planet that we kind of lose when we see the planet over there and us over here behind the moon looking at it and saying, ''Oh, we have a duty to this poor little fragile planet.'' Um, and that's not the way to think about it. We are inside it. One of the strongest images of the planet, the images of the planet that I keep coming back to at the moment, are the images that you get in the paintings of Turner, where you can't see where the industry and where the weather and where the human activity begin and end, where your, your whole perspective is within the movements and the motions of this great engine.
1: Kim Stanley Robinson, let's turn to uh, Hollywood, popular culture. There's been a number of films recently, well going back to the day after tomorrow about uh, 10 years ago, which talked about the changing Arctic currents and, and kind of like S- Superstorm Sandy hitting New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been others. Well, Matt Damon seems to go to different planets all the time. Uh, Snowpiercer uh, was Never a works movie. It does out well for him, though, no. it <laughs> it does Yeah. And Snowpiercer was a film about geoengineering gone wrong. And tell us about the, the portrayal and popular culture of these <clears throat> concepts. Well, I've dealt with it myself and uh, the it's a it's a, a
4: difficult narrative problem because uh, climate change is going to take place over decades or centuries. And so you want your narrative to take place over days or at most months. And indeed, for for me, I can speak for myself, and it happened with this movie The Day After Tomorrow, when they analyzed the Greenland ice core data, they saw that the Younger Dryas, where we went from a, a warm, a wet world into a cold, dry world, had happened in about three years. And they postulated that perhaps the Gulf Stream had shut down because of fresh water on its surface, and that this explained it. And all this uh, uh, scientific work and explanation of peculiar data gave us the idea of abrupt climate change, and then I had my story, and so did the day after tomorrow. You can tell a story that takes place in three years, and uh, it's a frightening one, but it also allows you to get narrative traction on it. So, and also telling the story of things going wrong is inherently more dramatic than the story of things going right, and as a utopian science fiction writer, I've dealt with that one also. So there are uh, several um, problems for the way
1: that we tell stories to be able to engage with climate change. Part of all of our story. If you're just joining us, Oliver Morton is the briefings editor at The Economist. Other guests today at Climate One are Ken Caldera, a climate scientist from the Carnegie Institution at Stanford. And Kim Stanley Robinson, author of science fiction. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. uh, My name is Matt Stewart. I'm wondering if you were put in charge today and we didn't, let's say, United States and we didn't have a crazy Congress, you may be able to get something through and you're running for president, what would you do with geoengineering right away? Oliver, but, you're British, you're not getting this one, unless you'd like to uh, come back as a, <laughs> as a British sovereign, but I don't know. Um, Ken Caldeira?
0: Well, I don't want to be too self-serving, but as a research scientist, I, I have to say that I'm in favor of increased research, and, and so uh, you know, I would... Greatly increase the research budgets, but but engage in the research in a way that has a lot of public input and international collaboration. Kim Stanley Robinson, any thoughts? Oh, you'd pay a hundred science fiction novelists to write science
3: fiction novels, no. <laughs> and obviously I would employ yeah. many journalists who <laughs> equally find well. But, but I, I, I must say, I mean, I I think the most important thing would be to say this is something we need to learn about and talk about, but we need we we can as America has the greatest scientific infrastructure in the world, we can learn a lot about it and we can take a strong role in that, but we're not going to be leaders of the world in discussing how to use this. We're going to put this knowledge at the disposal of our friends and colleagues around the world in order to have a discussion that it's worthwhile having.
1: But, uh, Albert Morton, you're the environmental editor at The Economist. Many environmentalists think that this, even having this discussion is harmful and counterproductive to their ends.
3: That's certainly true, because there's, um, I mean, there's, and there are various reasons for that. Um, and uh, one of them is that they don't feel that this addresses the ultimate cause of the problem. Um, and there's, a, there's a obviously truth in that. And, 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 I, I th- and I think that it's very important, as I've said before in this conversation, to address carbon dioxide uh, emissions as well as to talk about this sort of stuff, let alone to do this sort of stuff. But one of the underlying causes of the problem is not addressing the problem. And so, in a sense, by addressing the problem, one of the things you do is at least you address the problem. You have a story out there that's getting told about what you can actually do.
4: Can I um, add, uh, um, since you're postulating a a kind of a a kingly moment, a carbon tax that increases over time, um, a solar credit so that people could put solar uh, photovoltaic and solar water heating... And also a a full employment, Uh, everybody gets a job that wants one in in landscape restoration and in um, creation of wetlands, creation of uh, reforesting the deforested areas. A lot of work to be done. And so these things are specific policies that could um, really help in in this situation.
1: We're talking about geoengineering at Climate One. Geoengineering being the idea of uh, bouncing uh, uh, sunlight, sun power uh, from the sky back out into outer space using various technological means. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
4: No kidding, outer space. So I'm Joe Mascaro from Planet Labs. We launched small satellites uh, for Earth observation. My question is about um, our perception of how human civilization interacts with our biosphere. I think historically we've thought of human civilization as something nested within the biosphere. And that is no longer true. I mean, already uh, we have a portion of human civilization living on the Martian surface in the form of the Opportunity and Curiosity rovers. We have the space station. How do you think that we ought to recalibrate uh, our perception of the moral considerations of geoengineering with respect to the fact that we clearly already today have a civilization that exceeds the scope geographically of our biosphere.
0: Who'd like to tackle that one? Ken Caldera. I'll let these guys give better answers than me, but I'm, I'm kind of a Luddite, actually, on this one, in that I, I would like to see humans withdraw to as compact an area as possible and allow wilderness to flourish in the rest of the planet. That's my utopic vision, and hmm. Um, That's not
3: being a luddite. That's just being an American, Um, (laughs) and you know, and many of my best friends. But I live in a in a country which has parts of it which are extraordinarily beautiful. No part of which can be reasonably described as a wilderness, uh, and where we're discussing creating, I'm discussing. Creating radical, novel ecosystems to make it more beautiful. I find the idea that uh, I find the idea that um, the humans must be a, a small set of side part in a great wilderness. I I understand the power of that idea, but I think you have to realize it's a very culturally specific idea.
1: Kim Stanley Robinson retreat, sort of restore balance of human and nature. No, but to the uh,
4: space science is an earth science, and the solar system is our neighborhood. And when we talk about Mars, we we are thinking. Uh, about planets, and when we think about planets, we're realizing we're on a planet. And so it's all good in that regard. And we, um, this is the only planet we can live on and stay healthy, and I think that will be true for uh, tens of thousands of years. So there is no Planet B, and that, that moral hazard is taken away as soon as you understand that. But studying these other places, sending robots uh, with cameras, and sending people as scientific stations, the way we sent people to Antarctica a century ago, It's all fantastically interesting and exciting and
1: useful and beautiful. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome.
4: Hi, I'm Mark Harnett. Um, Is there a way to test the solar engineering on a local level? Once you put stuff under the stratosphere, does it necessarily affect the whole planet?
3: And then who do you think is going to do it first and when? There's no way to test, as it were, sort of like the planetary effect without getting a planetary effect. There are ways to... You could test some of the side effects... By doing small experiments, you could test some of the what happens to the chemistry and physics of the upper atmosphere when you put this in. Um, Some people have suggested that you might be able to do short-term effects on something like a heat wave, but in general, this is a this is a planetary sort of phenomenon, and you probably you will not know exactly what you get. Um, until you get it. But that's also true of non-deliberate climate change. I mean, the models that tell you what to expect under increased greenhouse warming are the same models as the models that tell you what to expect under greenhouse warming plus geoengineering. And then they get no less accurate when you add in the geoengineering. In fact, um, we may not want to go into this uh, now, but Ken's occasionally argued to me that they're possibly more accurate when they deal with geoengineering and global warming than global warming alone.
1: Ken Caldera, could this be tested regionally? There are some suggestions for along the California coast or other places.
0: First, to reiterate what Oliver said, that there is one reason to do experiments is to learn about local process uh, effects. But there have been proposals which have not yet been evaluated, that, for example, a fine mist could be created off the coast of California that would then cool the ocean and increase the amount of coastal fog, which is dissipating as the planet continues to warm. And the California coastal redwoods depend on this fog for the water, so not all that water goes up the trunk. Some of it's getting absorbed by the leaves. And if this fog goes away, a lot of the coastal redwoods could go away. And so there's, it's been suggested that a fine spray might be able to maintain the coastal redwoods. The, similarly, uh, if the ocean's cooled off in this way, there's it's likely that an increased cool, moist sea breeze could come into the desert southwest, or at least it's possible. And the idea that, oh, by spraying some seawater in the air that you might be able to cool off uh, what will become an increasingly parched region might become uh, attractive. A- and so these are still in the realm of speculation, but uh, I think it's the kind of thing that people would like to understand better. And those would
3: be projects, though, that weren't aimed in and of themselves at changing the global climate. Though if you added such projects together across the face of the globe, you would have a global change, but then that's very hard to predict what would actually happen. Right. Let's go to our next question.
1: Hi, I'm Jessica Loving from the Breakthrough Institute. I have an
2: opposing hypothetical geoengineering experiment So suppose we're really successful at deploying clean energy, shutting down coal plants, providing people electricity so they stop burning wood and dung. We'd have a dramatic decrease in particulate emissions, which could cause a short-term dramatic uh,
4: warming. Is that something that's studied, or is it so unfeasible that we'd actually do it that
0: it's not of a concern?
1: So Ken Caldeira, shutting down coal plants could make the world hotter.
0: Yes, Uh, Coal plants today, I don't don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but uh, some substantial fraction, probably over half the warming that's caused by our carbon dioxide emissions is offset by sulfur coming out of coal plants, largely from Asian coal plants. And if those were shut down instantaneously, the planet would warm up substantially. And if... If the Chinese, as they shut down their coal plants, maybe took 5% of that sulfur and put it higher in the atmosphere, they would maintain that cooling. And and, um, and, and so this idea that, that maybe one... We're already emitting sulfur into the atmosphere and cooling the earth through the burning of coal and if that could be maybe done more thoughtfully and reduce those emissions by 95%, but still get the same cooling effect.
1: Structures. Let's go to our
0: next question. Welcome. Hi. Um, when we talk about geoengineering, we hear a lot about the atmosphere. My question is, would geoengineering be important or begin at the ocean level, and do we adequately understand enough about how oceans uh, affect climate and ocean processes affect the climate? Ken Caldera, you've written yeah, about this. Yeah, well, we, uh, one proposal which we vetted... It's some model simulations last year, the deep ocean is very cold. On average, it's um, less than 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And, and so one idea to cool the Earth is to bring some of this cold water up to the surface and then take this warm water at the surface and stuff it down into the deep ocean. And what we found in our simulations is that this warm surface water also helps maintain the clouds. And when this cold water was brought up, The clouds went away, and then the sun warmed this dark ocean surface, and by the end of the century, the planet was warmer than it would have been had you never attempted doing this. And so uh, (laughs) people are thinking about various ocean interventions just from a modeling point of view, but so far, um, I would say the... Proposals, at least the proposals that we've looked at, haven't been very promising.
3: It's really interesting the way that the the ocean has this huge controlling effect on climate, and yet the atmosphere gets all the attention. That's right, because the atmosphere is easier to change, and the atmosphere um, is a kind of small thing, right? It's about the same mass as the Mediterranean Sea. It's tiny compared to the oceans, and that's why um, even uh, that's why. Industrial civilization is able to change the climate so much is because the atmosphere is actually quite small. Um, I just find that a very, a very telling idea. It's, it's like it provides a certain amount of leverage, and it's hard to find other levers to move the ocean around with other than the atmosphere.
1: We had Sylvia Earle here last year. There's a podcast in, on climateone.org and, and iTunes. She talked about how oceans eloquently drive the climate rather than people think the other way around that the atmosphere affects the oceans it's the oceans that that drive weather and climate can caldera if you
0: compress the atmosphere down to the density of water it's only about 30 feet deep and so one way to think of all the pollution we're putting into the atmosphere it's like putting it into a lake that's 30 feet deep and so it's understandable that we can our pollution will accumulate and have mm-hmm. substantial effects.
1: Ken Caldera is a climate scientist at Stanford. We're also talking with Oliver Morton from The Economist magazine and Kim Stanley Robinson, the science fiction author. We're getting close to the end. I want to ask you uh, what an average person listening to this can do to to have an influence, not to uh, get involved in geoengineering in their backyard, uh, but what an average person can do, Ken Caldera, to have a positive influence. And I'm going to wrap up with one last question to each of you.
0: Well, it's good for people to reduce their own carbon footprints and so on. I think really this is a political problem that will be solved by changing our entire energy and transportation infrastructures. And so I think the most important thing that people can do is let their elected representatives know that uh, their votes depend on them uh, supporting sound climate policy. But democracy will solve the problem. Uh, Oliver Morton, what can an
1: average person do?
3: I'm not particularly uh, enamoured of these, these ideas of incremental action uh, because I think it lets the political system off the hook. Um, I think that uh, the problem is that, to some extent, if people of goodwill act and people not of goodwill don't act, then you don't have a solution to the problem. The, the idea of, this is why politics is absolutely fundamental to this. The idea is to find things that people who disagree about a lot can agree on doing, and that's a political process. So I would say to some extent, uh, as, as Ken does, political, uh, political answer. But I'd also say you should get interested in the processes of the Earth. Geoengineering is about changing processes of the Earth. You live on an extraordinary planet, and we understand that planet far better than we ever have before. And simply trying to partake of some of that understanding... With a spirit of reverence and a spirit of awe to the extent that you want, but also with a spirit of fascination and wonder at the mechanisms involved. I think that's both politically useful and I think it's life enhancing. So I think that's what people should do.
1: Watch those David Attenborough uh, documentaries. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, you came down here from Sacramento on the train today. What else can people do, uh, average people, to have an impact?
4: Um, keep a garden. Compost, uh, ride a bike, uh, uh, work outdoors, um, vote leftists, don't believe in the capitalist system. The market system is actually causing the mass extinction event, so there's not really a market solution. We actually need um, post-capitalism. So think post-capitalism. What is that? It's mysterious. You Google it, you get nothing. That's in itself remarkable,
3: because we need it bad.
1: I can't resist uh, we have a very market-based person uh, here. from A man
3: who works for a very market-based ma- magazine. Uh, okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. Uh, But I would is... also point out, as many people, including uh, Jim McCusk, various people point out, there is a difference between markets and capitalism.
1: Are markets part of the problem or part of the solution or both, Oliver Morton?
3: Markets can be part of some of the solution, but markets are not a solution. The, no market solution will be articulated through geoengineering, or rather no geoengineering solution, I think, will be articulated through the market.
1: Uh, We have to wrap it up there. We've been talking about geoengineering, the idea of bouncing uh, sun's radiation back up into the sky and other means here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club with Kim Stanley Robinson, the science fiction author. Oliver Morton from The Economist, and Ken Caldeira, a climate scientist at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at one and listen to podcasts of this and other programs on our website, climateone.org. Thanks to the audience here in the room with the Commonwealth Club and online in our air. Thank you all and thank our guests. Thanks. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.